Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. The rest of you, I'd invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians. It's in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your order of worship. It's rather short. It's only two verses. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's, there's some on the back table. Those are for you. Grab one on the way out. Um, or you can grab one right now. That may be a little awkward for you, so I don't want to put pressure on you. But uh, any way you can have the text in front of you, it would be good. Uh, so that you know that I'm not making this stuff up, because that doesn't help anyone, okay? So, um, where's this? There it is. No, there it is. All right, so if you've been in the valley for any amount of time, and some of you have, some of you grew up here, um, if you're like me, you're a transplant, but maybe you've been here for a little bit. If you've been here for any amount of time and spoken with people about the things of God, what you'll find is that everyone in the valley has a church, right? Everybody's got a church, which is really funny because most of the churches, especially in this city, are empty right now. Or at least relatively empty. Uh, what that highlights, though, is that lots of people have an experience of church with a little c. But not necessarily an experience of the church with a big c. Um, and what I mean by that is, is, is Christ's church as a, a, as a vibrant living thing. But let me make that a little less sociological, a little more personal. This means that probably even many of us here in this room uh, may believe we understand what it means to become a Christian, to live as a Christian, even to be a community of Christians together, but we probably don't. I mean, at least not really. So from now until the summer, with a little bit of breaks here and there, there's a couple, we're going to be looking at the New Testament book of Philippians to try and find a framework for all of these things. What it means to become a Christian, to live as a Christian, to live as Christians together uh, as a community, as the church. But as we do this, we need to lay a foundation. And interestingly, the first two verses of Paul's letter to the church in Philippi do this. They, they, they lay a foundation for us, and they, they do that simply by addressing those who are part of that church. Because you see, the community that God is building is beautiful, but it's not beautiful for reasons that you would think. In fact, most of the reasons why this community is beautiful is because it is unlike anything that we would expect. But ultimately, it's beautiful because God calls it so. So if you have your place in Philippians chapter 1, if you'd stand with me in honor of God's word. Just two verses, real simple. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's word for our flourishing. Um, as, as I pray for us, uh, I'd invite you to pray for me uh, as, as, we, as we gather into this time that the Lord would, would speak. Let's pray together. Father, you are good and all of your goodness is on display even in these two short verses. I pray that you would give us ears to hear from you this morning. That no matter where we are with whatever story we've come into this room with, that 
you would meet us right there. Whether that's um, at a point of doubt and unbelief, whether that is uh, at a place of great faith and celebration, or whether that is clinging by our fingernails to the gospel of Jesus. We ask that you would meet us there, that you would preach your gospel to us, and that you would help us to see what it means that you are a giver of grace and peace even to us here in this room this morning. Do this for our, our good, for your glory, so that the city might be blessed through us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So, I said that everybody in the valley has, has a church. And uh, what that means is that many of us, whether you would consider yourself part of that or not, probably have an image in our head of what church is, right? And if you grew up in church, that image will be made up of those people that you saw every week, the things that you did, uh, kind of that, that interplay that you had between uh, boredom, expectation, and, and uh, some form of, of uh, stress, more than likely. Others of us who haven't grown up in church, will be, that, that image will be more stereotypical in nature, but we all have it. Some of those images are of a bunch of people who look like they have it all together. Right? They, they all look the same, and, and they're probably a little stuffy. Uh, for others of us, those images include large hats and long worship services. But, but what does it really mean to be part of this thing? What does it mean to be part of the community that God gathers? Th- this this uh, greeting that Paul gives here in, in the beginning of Philippians gives us a hint of that. Not only because of what is said, but of because of who says it and who he says it to. And so, in light of that, what we're going to do is we're going to look at this text in three ways. There's, as always, there's an outline in your, in your bulletin if that's helpful. We're going to look at the who, we're going to look at the what, and then we're going to look at the why. Real simple, okay? The who, the what, and the why. Let's get to it. So, this is our first foray into this letter. Which means that much of what we're going to do here this morning is laying out context. Uh, and... and Hopefully, at this point in our lives, maybe not, but, but maybe it's just important to remind us. We need to understand that anytime we read anything, context is one of the most important things, right? Context helps us. It, it helps us understand what is trying to be communicated. Uh, but especially when we're reading the Bible, context is insanely important so that we're not twisting the passage to make it say what we want. Um, so, let's start first with who... Who is listed as the, the, the writers, the, the authors of this? And we're given two, right? Look at that right, right there in verse 1, right at the beginning. Paul and Timothy. Now, Paul and Timothy, let me introduce you, these guys to you. Maybe they're familiar to you, maybe they're not. I think you'll like them. First, Paul. Paul's kind of famous. He wrote half the New Testament. Like, he, he's, he's done a lot. He, but because he wrote half the New Testament, or almost half the New Testament, a lot of us have this image in our head of who we think Paul is, or was. Uh, but my guess is that image would be wrong. See, Paul wasn't one of Jesus' original followers. Not only was Paul not one of Jesus' original followers, he actually hated them. And by hate, I mean he hated Jesus, he hated those who followed Jesus, and he hated any, anyone who was described as a Gentile in the ancient world. And a Gentile would be anyone who's not Jewish. So he hated Jesus, he hated Jesus' followers, he hated Gentiles... And, and he hoped and prayed and, and, and desired that God would judge them, and if possible, through him. Right? And which means that early in his life, he, he um, gathered um, permission letters from the Jewish authorities and would go from city to city, dragging anyone who was rumored to be a Christian out of their homes and either throwing them in jail or, in at least one case we know of, having them put to death. 
Then, on his way to a city called Damascus to do this very thing, Jesus appears to him, reveals that he actually is the Lord, and claims Paul for his own. End of story, right? Not exactly. I want you to imagine something for a minute. You've gone from notorious Christian killer to Christian convert. How do you think Christians are going to respond to you? How do you think you're going to respond to you? I mean, you've got a past, right? It's a pretty bad one. Like, not like, ooh, I made a couple of mistakes in high school, bad. Like, I got blood on my hands, bad. And so the Bible tells us that Paul actually spent the next 14 years of his life in relative isolation from other Christians. You can imagine why. I doubt churches were lining up to accept him. Right? And not only that, I doubt Paul, and we're not told this, so this is a bit of conjecture, but I can imagine because Paul's a dude just like me. He's a person just like you. And so he remembers what he did. And so when he looks into the eyes of other Christians, what he can think of is those people that he probably dragged out. Some of them he may have even met again. There was probably some embarrassment. And so he spent some time isolated. That may be hard for us to understand. I want you to imagine it this way. Think what it would be like if you were one of the strong arms, one of the, one of the muscle of Boko Haram or of ISIS. And your job was basically to hunt down Christians, because we know that's actually happening in the world right now, right? Christians in other parts of the world are being hunted down by folks in these groups, and they're being dragged out, forced to either convert or die. But all of a sudden, that, that muscle becomes a Christian. Now what? But then, after those 14 years, a leader in the church by the name of Barnabas finds him, takes Paul under his wing, and they end up planting churches throughout the Mediterranean. That's who Paul is. He's not a super Christian. He's just a guy rescued by Jesus and set apart to give his life to see others rescued. That's Paul. Maybe you can relate to him. If not to him, maybe to Timothy. See, Timothy, we're told about in a couple places, not, not a ton of places. We're talked about, he's talked about in Acts chapter 16. Um, we're given a little bit of his history in, in 2 Timothy. That's a, a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, obviously, they were separate at the time, right? They're together now. They were probably separate at the time. Um, unlike us, Paul didn't feel the need to text everything to his peop- the people that were right next to him. Okay, So he's writing this letter to Timothy in, in, first, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. We're told a few things about him. What we're told about Timothy is that his mama was Jewish and his daddy was Greek. Okay, so he, he, he is raised in kind of a, a home in which you would expect, oh, there's kind of some differing religious values. Actually, um, what we know is that in the ancient world, what would make little Timmy Jewish is, is who is his mama. Okay, like uh, that kind of descent is comes from the mama because, of course, you don't have paternity test. Right. So you can't really tell. So so that's all derived from mama. But here's what we know about Timothy. He wasn't raised Jewish. There was a little defining feature that he didn't have, that he has to get later. Okay? He, he, so he, he's not raised Jewish, which means that he's, he's raised in a family where mama was Jewish, daddy wasn't. He's not raised Jewish, probably means he wasn't raised anything. He was a nun. <laughs> or maybe, maybe he was pagan, which is really just another word for nun. At some point, though, probably, uh, we know this is before Paul met him. Little Timmy's grandma, Lois, becomes a Christian. And then through Lois, 
Timmy's mama, Eunice, becomes a Christian. And then at some point after that, through, through his grandma and his mama, Tim becomes a Christian. Okay? So Paul meets Timothy when he comes to a city named Lystra. That's again in Acts 16. He takes, Paul takes Timothy under his wing, just like Barnabas has done with them. And he takes him with him to plant other churches throughout the Mediterranean world. And the very next city they visit to start a church is Philippi. So these aren't probably the guys you thought, right? They came from very different backgrounds. Neither were with Jesus in the beginning. Both of them came to faith in a very awkward way, like many of us did. So that's Paul and Timothy. And everyone kind of accepts that Timothy actually had very little part to write in writing this, but his name is there anyway, because Paul, Timothy's obviously with Paul and he's greeting them. But let's now look at our readers, okay? Those are our writers. Let's look at our readers. They're all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Now, let's start at the end of that. So we know Paul and Timothy went to Philippi to plant a church. Philippi is a city in, in what was Macedonia. Okay? It is, uh, it's now part of, part of Greece. Um, it was founded by Philip of Macedon, thus the name Philippi. Okay? Philip of Macedon, you probably haven't heard of him, but his, his son you know, more than likely. His name was Alexander. He was great. Okay, Um, he conquered a lot of things. So um, Philippi became part of the Roman Empire in 42 BC when two guys by the name of Mark Antony and Octavius, who would later be known as Augustus, he was kind of a big deal too, uh, found two of Augustus's adopted dad's murderers. Augustus's uh, Octavian's uh, adopted dad was a guy by the name of Julius. He was a big deal, too, in Rome. Okay, So they find, they find their murderers, um, Brutus and Cassius, and their army. And they, and they beat Brutus and Cassius there at Philippi. And so they conquer uh, Philippi. It becomes a Roman colony. That's a really big deal. That's going to come up later in the, in the book. So come back for that. We don't have time to get into that today. Okay, Now, that's the city. But the people there are called saints. And when we, think, when we hear the word saints, we think of church folk, right? Think of church folk. Suits. Big hats, potluck dinners, like church folk. Let me give you some biography of three of the people who probably heard this. They heard this read, more than likely. In other words, when when Paul addresses it to the saints in Philippi in Christ Jesus, these are three of the people who probably would have heard that and said, oh, he's talking to me. We know that they probably heard this read because they all came to faith through Paul when he and Timothy first came to Philippi. Again, back to Acts 16. We are given three pictures of three very different people. The first is a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia is the first person in Philippi to place her faith in Jesus. Okay? Uh, Lydia um, was wealthy, upper class businesswoman. She dealt in what is called what, what we're told is purple dye, which to us we're like, what's well, the big deal? Well, in the ancient world, purple dye was like very rare, very difficult to come by, and it was very expensive. So if she was a dealer in purple dye, that meant she, was, she had the quan, man. Like, she was, she was rolling in the money. As a matter of fact, we know that she becomes a Christian, and later the church, the church, meets in her house. Okay? So this, this is not a lady working on a, you know, a 500 square foot flat. Like, she's got some money. She's got some, some, uh, some influence. She was also called a Gentile worshiper of God. What that means is she's kind of religious, but but uh, kind of thought, I'm going to be a Gentile who worships the God of Israel. Okay? 
And we're told that Paul ends up uh, approaching her uh, with some of her friends, preaches the gospel to her, and she becomes Christians. That's the first one. That probably doesn't sound all that unusual to you, right? The second is a slave girl. So what Acts tells us about the slave girl is that she had a demon. <laughs> okay, we don't have a ton of time to get into that. So she had a demon, and, and that demon brought her owners a lot of money through fortune-telling. Okay, And so basically what would happen is you had a, a couple of guys who owned her, and let me say that again, they owned her. And she would um, tell people's fortunes, give people predictions, and then they would get a lot of money for that. She is used, she is owned, she is broken, she is dehumanized. So when Paul shows up in Philippi, she start, this girl starts following him around and heckling him. Uh, and, and so Paul, at some point, gets fed up with the heckling, turns to her and casts out the demon. <laughs> and which means that suddenly she's out of bondage. Like, she's no longer in bondage to the demon. Her owners get a little upset because their golden goose is gone. So they, they throw her aside, too. She can't bring them any more money. She is delivered uh, from a, a lifestyle full of brokenness. The last person we're talked about is a jailer. Because you see, those slave owners didn't appreciate their golden goose being taken. I told you that. So they had Paul and his partner put in prison, which is um, a great comfort to us, I think, on some level. That, you know, if, if you got a record, don't worry, so did Paul. Um, maybe not for the same things, but uh, he did too. So here's the thing about Roman jailers. Roman jailers weren't like your nicest of people. Most of them were retired soldiers, which basically means they were professional death dealers. That's what they did. They were professional death dealers. Uh, What we know about this jailer is that he brought Paul into his custody, beat the living tar out of him, and then put his feet into stocks, which is a way to keep you as uncomfortable as possible while you're there. And then in the midst of that, through an incredible event, again, you can read about it, it's in Acts 16, Paul shares the gospel with this guy as he's about to throw himself on his own sword because he thought his life was forfeit. Again, you can go back and read it later. And he, he's about to throw his, himself on his own sword. Paul stops him, preaches the gospel to him. He comes to faith. Not only does he come to faith, he, he brings Paul out to his own home, cleans him up, binds the wounds that he had put on him. So think about this. These are the saints that Paul is writing to. I'm sure sure there are others, right? But what we are are told in Acts 16 is that these saints include a rich, upper-class woman, an ex-slave with an insane past, and someone who amounts to a mob enforcer. This isn't exactly the church you have in your mind, is it? Not a whole lot of suits and big hats in this crowd. Maybe it should be the church you imagine, though. That's the who. Now let's look at the what, right? What is it that Paul is addressing? And this is important for us so that we don't make any assumptions. Look again at verse 1, where he says, all the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. Okay. Now, we've already talked about who some of these people were. They're not exactly your forerunners for religious person of the year. All right. These are an eclectic group of people, but here they're called saints, Now, in our day, primarily because of the Roman Catholic 
practice of canonizing people um, who not only lived great lives, but apparently then caused miracles after they died, we get a little confused about what this means. Okay, So, for instance, Mother Teresa is on the fast track. Now that she's died, she's on the fast track uh, to being canonized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church, hopefully in time for the movie that's coming out detailing her life. be really helpful if those two things came together, right? So, the word we translate saint in the original Greek just means holy one. That's all it means, holy one. Okay? And if you were listening to what I was saying in the previous section about the jailer, the slave girl you were probably a little confused, right? I mean, how can they be described as holy? Maybe Paul's only talking about certain people there. He's not not everybody. Maybe it's only certain people that he's describing this way. Not at all. Because you see, the, the important part about this is the qualifier. It says all the saints in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. Because you see, the Bible t- teaches us that nobody by nature is holy. No one. No one by nature is holy. Holy. To, to be holy means to be set apart for God. But by nature, what the scriptures teach us is, is that all of us are, are, in fact, alienated from God. We, we have this genetic disorder we call sin. So not only are we by nature unholy, but we are helpless to become holy. Can't change our genes. You know? Can't make ourselves holy. We can't do that because of our sin. But Jesus came to rescue us from that. And so when we place our faith in him, the scriptures say that we are united to him. We are placed in him. Okay? In him. That's what that in language means. Okay, we're going to flesh that out in a minute. But, but it, what's important for us to see here is that what makes you a saint is not the quality of your life. What makes you a saint is having faith in Jesus. Do you have faith in Christ this morning? Then, friend, you are a saint holy before God because you have been united to Jesus. If you don't have faith in Christ this morning, I'm sorry, I don't care how great your life looks. I don't care how many people grew their little toes back because you prayed for them. You aren't a saint. Savvy? Like, that, God, like that's just that's what the scripture says. Okay? So let me say that again so we can hear it clearly. The New Testament teaches that if you are a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you place your faith alone in Christ... That you are declared a saint because you have been united to Jesus. And look, I know that this sounds nutty. I, look, you're thinking, some of you are here and you're the Christians this morning and you're thinking to yourself right now, you're thinking, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard, Rick. Do you, do you have any clue what I've done this week? Yeah, no, I don't. But you don't have any clue what I've done either, so we're on equal playing fields, right? We need to remember that this holiness is not in us. The important thing about holiness is us being in Christ, not that holiness being in us. Okay. So basically what it says when we're talking about the fact that that Paul is writing to all the saints in Christ in Philippi, that Paul is writing to every Christian in Philippi. Got it? Okay. But it isn't purely about individuals. Let's keep reading. He says to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with... The overseers and the deacons. Now, those terms may be unfamiliar to you, so stick with me. I'll I'll try and make sense, sense of them. Here's the short of it. Both of those terms are applied to specific kinds of leaders in the church. Specific kinds of leaders. Now, let me explain that. The word overseers, which sounds 
awful. Like, we got to find a better way of, of translating that term. Because overseer sounds like somebody who's running a work site and in not a very nice way, doesn't it? Like somebody who's got like a, a stick and they're beating it and they're watching you. That's not what's here. That, that's the way that we translate uh, the Greek word episkopos, okay? Uh, it's synonymous with another Greek word that we translate elder. Okay, so these, these overseers, these elders, would have been those charged with caring for this community spiritually. These are the folks who, who would have been expected to teach the Bible, who would have been expected to lead the church, who would have been, been expected to correct those who were wandering from the gospel, and ultimately be those who were protecting the church. Okay? So that's, that's the, the overseers. The deacons, that's a way that we translate this Greek word that, that means servant, Deacons are those in the church who led the church in caring for the poor, uh, in, in, in meeting the physical needs within the church, uh, and, and leading the church to reach out and care for the poor. So Paul is addressing these saints along with their leaders. Here's why this is important. What this means is that it was expected that these individual Christians were part of something bigger than them. That what was expected was that they were part of an organization, an organization with structures, with leadership, with defined roles and boundaries. And this makes perfect sense if, if we understand the story of the Bible because we see it throughout the scriptures that God doesn't just rescue persons, but he creates a people. He gathers a people for himself. And I say this knowing that it is completely vogue to be opposed to organized religion, right? I mean, that is like, if if there's something that is synonymous with being spiritual, it seems to be being opposed to organized religion. But here's what I'd say to you if that's you this morning. If what you mean by being opposed to organized religion is that you are opposed to a group of people who use religion to control others, to support their power base, or to make make themselves feel right then you are correct in rejecting it. If that's, what, if that's what we define organized religion, you are completely correct in rejecting it. I'd argue that's probably not what we should define organized religion as, but that's okay. If, though, maybe that's not you, but you still, like, no, I'm still against organized religion. And, and what you mean by that is you want to be able to be a Christian on your own, in your own way, without any kind of accountability, then you have to understand that the Bible doesn't think that that is either possible or good for us, any of us, myself being the utmost of that. We are part of a people, and in the wisdom of God, he provides structures and leaders around us to help us grow in the gospel. So you have a group of people looking way different than we probably imagined at first, being gathered into, not just being little individual, isolated, spiritual monads all over the city, but into into a unit, into a community that has leaders who are defined by specific roles that they follow, which means that the community as a whole has boundaries, okay? That's what this group is. It's a community of saints with leaders and structures. But how did that happen? How does someone go from being a death-dealing, abusive jailer to a saint, Or how does someone go from being a train wreck slave girl to a saint or even a self-sufficient religious rich woman? Because if we're being honest with ourselves, 
In our society, in our culture, even in this room, the first two we can almost understand becoming Christians, can't we? They're needy. The last one? I mean, she, she's got it all together. She's got a spiritual life. We know that. She's already religious. And she's got lots of money. She's not real needy, right? How do all these people come together and become a church? Okay? Listen, if you checked out earlier, I need you to check back in. Because this is the most important part of these two verses. And it comes down to two words. Grace and peace. Okay? Let me start with grace. For most of us, when I say the word grace, we, we think that thing you say before dinner. You know, the blessing. The blessing. Like, that's, that's what we end up thinking. Uh, the, let, me, let me tell you. Grace. Grace. Is the one principle. The one, the one word. That sets Christianity apart from every other way of looking at the world. Religious or otherwise. Because grace means unmerited. Unmerited. Write that down. Unmerited favor. It means getting something you don't deserve. Think about that. Because everything in us says that is just wrong. As a matter of fact, even those of us who say we're champions of grace, when we come down to it, we may champion grace on Sunday, but Monday through Saturday, what we end up thinking is, God's only going to love me if I do X. Or if I do Y, he's not going to love me as much. Grace pushes against everything that is natural in us. Because in this case, grace isn't the grace of Paul. It's the grace of God. So don't miss this. How does a jailer, a slave girl, and a religious rich woman all become saints in Christ Jesus? It's by grace. It's by grace. So some of you are thinking, like, wait a minute, Rick. If grace is unmerited, are you saying they didn't do anything? That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying they didn't do anything. Here's the more scandalous part. Okay, here's... Not only did they not do anything and they got God's favor. That's scandalous. Here's more scandalous. Every one of them was equally in need of it. And Lydia's life looked real pretty and real self-sufficient. And the jailer literally had blood on his hands. And they were equally in need of it. None of them more than the others. Because the scriptures teach us that all of us, no matter how our life has gone or the choices we've made, are all sinners by nature. Okay? That's a huge concept, because what that means is that sin isn't just what we do. Sin isn't just what we do, where we can see someone misbehaving and point to them and go, sinner. Like, that's not, that's not what it is. Sin is what we are. And so we can't earn anything before God. We can't merit anything. We are sinners, and hopelessly so. But Jesus came to live the life that we couldn't, to die to bear the judgment due for our sin, which, which means that, in shorthand, that Jesus came to rescue us from that. And so we place our faith in him and we are given grace. You see, the church, whether it's in Philippi or Stanton, is not filled with good, moral people. The church is filled with needy people. Needy people who understand that they are needy. And they've accepted God's grace in Jesus. And can I tell you, there's always room for more. The one thing that God asks you to bring to the table, the only thing you need, is need. That's it. If you've got it, then you can receive God's grace. The second word is peace. 
I feel like we've talked about this a lot through Advent, but I'm going to reiterate it because some of you weren't here. Um, and, other, and frankly, we just all need to be reminded. Peace is the Bible's word. Okay, That, that, that word in, in the Hebrew is called shalom. You've probably heard that before. That, that word means in the Bible, what it means is life as it was meant to be. Life as God designed it. With all of our relationships lining up. It means fullness. It means wholeness. What is it, friend, that you think will make you whole? What is it that will fill your life? That you're hoping is going to make things right for you? Money? I was talking about Lydia and you're like, man, she sounds like she got it good. Is it power? Jailer had lots of that. Is it love, acceptance, pleasure? Paul tells us the wholeness that you long for can only come through faith in Christ. That the life that we were made for is something that comes from God. Not something you achieve. Grace and peace are not things you achieve. They are gifts to be received. So the church is filled with lots of different kinds of people. Some people whose lives look nice and pretty. Others' lives look like someone set off an IED in the middle of it. But all are in the same position before God. And all are looking to Him to give them grace and peace. Those are the gifts. Let's conclude by looking at the givers. Because lastly, this greeting tells us who these givers are. Look at the end of verse 2. Because it says, From God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, Two things I want to say about this in conclusion. First, both these gifts of grace and peace, of salvation and satisfaction... Okay? It's another way of thinking about that. Salvation, the life to come, and satisfaction here are given. And they are given from both the Father and Jesus. Because you see, sometimes what we want to do, whether it's in whether you're a Christian or not, because I, can I be honest with you? Like this is some place that I wrestle. And it's all bound up in my story, probably like it is for you. But sometimes what we want to do is we want, to, we want to make it seem like God is a raging dictator, right? Like the Father is this raging dictator, and Jesus comes along and kind of makes him play nice. Like, calm down, everything's good now. See, they're really nice people. Get out of here. Like, that, this is what we want to make Jesus like. But listen, that's not it at all. Do you remember the most famous... Okay, last game of the football season is today, right? It's week 17. You're going to still see people hanging up signs. Right? With Bible verses on it. What's the one that they're most likely to be holding up? John 3.16. John 3.16. Like, for some reason, the most famous verse in all of the New Testament says, For God so loved the world that he sent his son. God loved the world. So he sent his son. What it didn't say is like, he's wicked angry at everybody. And Jesus went, I got I to gotta go help those people. Because this dude is just, okay, calm down. And he, as if Jesus is some codependent spouse. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus and the Father are not set against one another. They are united. 
Secondly, though, what is so awesome about this is that Paul calls God our Father. Grace and peace don't just make us forgiven. That would be awesome. That would be awesome. But that's not it. They don't just make us forgiven. They make us children of God. If you are in Christ this morning, if you are a saint in Christ Jesus, if you are trusting in Christ alone, do you know that because of grace? Because of grace, not because of how well you did this week, you are delightful to God. He loves you. Listen, I have four kids. Most of you know that. They are very different. And sometimes they try me. Okay, most of the time. But I delight in them. Did they earn that? No. I don't delight in them because they are good or nice. Though they can be. Okay? They often are. My kids aren't awful. They're they're good kids. But I don't delight in them because they are good or nice. I delight in them because they are mine. They're mine. You've got, some of y'all got some good kids. Don't get me wrong. They don't hold a candle to mine. Because mine are mine. They're mine. And if that is true of me, though I am a jacked up sinner in need of grace, how much more is it going to be true of the perfect God and Father of grace? Grace and peace are from the Lord Jesus who died for you and from the Father who delights in you and loved you enough to send the Son and both make you part of this community, this community that God delights in, this community called the church. Would you pray with me now? Lord, as we come into this time, we ask that you would press the gospel into our hearts. Some of us have never trusted in Jesus. And as we're here this morning, uh, some of us thought it was by accident. Some of us thought it's just not a big deal. But maybe right now we're beginning to think that actually maybe God had something planned. And, and And maybe it's starting to dawn on us right now that grace and peace is not something we can earn, but something that we can receive. Lord, for those in this room just like that, whether they are here for the first time or for, uh, like, they've been here every time since we started this thing, I pray that you would give faith. You would give that gift. The rest of us, though, Lord, there, there are many of us in this room who struggle, as I do, To not see you as a raging person who's at best just consistently disappointed. Would instead, as we come out of this time, help us see that no matter what our life has looked like, we are saints because we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are delighted in by the Father. And as we do that as individuals, help us grow together as a community that does that as well. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.